Welcome, welcome everyone. Welcome to the digital uh, incarnation of the Marshall Institute at the London School of Economics. Um, good morning. Uh, if it's the morning, good afternoon, if it's the afternoon, and good evening, if it's the evening. Um, you're very welcome um, to this uh, conversation about philanthropy, um, and uh, you're very welcome to join our distinguished speakers this afternoon. Um, the plan is that I will introduce our speakers. You will hear from each of them in, in turn. Um, the three of, uh, of them will uh, have a brief conversation and we will then open the, open the discussion to you, the audience. If you use the Q&A function to add in your questions, try and tell us who you are and uh, where you are. I will keep an eye on the Q&A and make sure that I um, uh, assign the questions either to the whole group of speakers uh, or to the one I deem the most um, relevant. Um, as you can see from some um, cunning product placement over my shoulder, um, we're very fortunate to have with us this afternoon uh, the author of uh, Philanthropy, from Aristotle to Zuckerberg. Paul Vallely is a very well-known papal biographer and a commentator on politics, religion, and society. Um, he's written an extraordinary and wide-ranging book, which for those of us who work in, on questions of altruism and giving and political legitimacy will be required reading for a very long time. Um, Paul describes philanthropy as having both head and heart. Um, and I think we'll hear, hear a little bit uh, from both perspectives. Um, Fran Perrin is a widely admired philanthropist and one of the most interesting progressive voices in the field. Uh, she's the co-founder and director of the Indigo Trust and co-founder uh, of 360 Giving, for which she received the first Open Data Institute's uh, Women in Data uh, Award. Um, Rob Reich uh, looks at philanthropy through the lens of political science. And the subtitle of his book, um, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better, is a fairly good um, hint at what his book, Just Giving, uh, is about. And my copy of that book is in London and I'm in Oxford. So behind me uh, is another book uh, for which Rob is uh, responsible. So I'm going to ask uh, Paul to speak briefly uh, about uh, his book. I'm then going to invite Fran to tell us about her work, Rob to tell us about his work. We'll then organise a conversation. And uh, all the while, I will keep my eye on the Q&A, which we will devote the last section uh, of the conversation to. So very warm welcome to the LSE. Very warm welcome, Paul. It's nice to have you here. Uh, congratulations on your book. Um, welcome. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you, Stefan, for those kind remarks. Um, as you suggest, the canvas of the book is very wide. It, uh, it's ambitious, if not overambitious, from Aristotle to Zuckerberg. And it deals with the relationship between giving and power, giving and plutocracy, giving and religion. It deals with the Black Death, the emergence of capitalism, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, the relationship with the welfare state, philanthropic capitalism, globalization, inequality, celebrity party politics and the current pandemic. 
So far too much to even do much more than list them at the beginning. So I'm just going to focus on one aspect today, which is the relationship between philanthropy and democracy. The interaction between these two has always been problematic. The heyday of Athenian democracy in the fourth century BCE uh, saw a system of uh, private individuals giving to public causes, um, which um, was known as liturgia. It was driven by a kind of peer group pressure, uh, the rich anxious to outdo one another in the scale of their donations. And it acted as a kind of cement for the social hierarchy. At the same time, in the same era, a parallel system of philanthropy grew up amongst the ancient Hebrews. In Judaism, the word for charity is also the same word as the word for justice, which tells you something quite interesting, creates an entirely alternative dynamic in the relationship between giving and power. So central to Judaism is this idea that man and woman uh, were created in the image of God, the story of Adam and Eve. And this was a revolutionary notion uh, in an age when only kings and emperors and pharaohs were considered gods. So it brought a kind of democratization to philanthropy. God had been generous in his creation, so men and women had a duty to be generous to one another. Everyone had that duty, not just the rich. And it wasn't top down, it was two way. So these two traditions, the Greek and the Jewish, have woven in and out of the history of philanthropy in more than 2000 years. If we come to the modern era, big giving conforms much more to this Greek model. And in the past two decades, we've seen an absolute explosion of philanthropy. Nearly three quarters of the world's philanthropic foundations have been established in the past 20 years. Between them, they control more than $1.5 trillion. The Gates Foundation alone has a bigger budget than 70% of the world's nations. So the upside of this new top-down philanthrocapitalism is obvious. Bill Gates has played a huge role in the virtual eradication of polio and much else. And since 2000, his investments have contributed to immunization programs that are reckoned to have saved 13 million lives. He's halved deaths from malaria and much else. But this approach has its downside, too. For every George Soros who's funding organizations to promote open and accountable government, there is a Charles Koch who is funding climate changing, denying academics and websites in the US and the UK. Other uh, conservative philanthropists uh, have also financed moves to disenfranchise uh, black voters in the US. So we may not like it, but surely rich people have the right to spend their money however they want. Well, that's true uh, up to a point. Because what happens if philanthropists make bad decisions? Again, let's look at Bill Gates. In 2000, he spent $2 billion on nearly 3,000 high schools, serving nearly a million poor and ethnic minority students. But a few years into this project, Gates suddenly decided that this wasn't working and he abruptly ended the funding uh, before many schools felt they'd been given the chance to demonstrate any improvement. So to the philanthropist, though this is a failed experiment, few lost billions, to children it was years of jeopardised uh, educational opportunity. And Mark Zuckerberg made very similar mistakes in 2010 when he gave a $100 million to a flagship project to reform schools in New Jersey. So this raises the, the issue to whom are philanthropists accountable? And this is complicated by the issue of tax relief. If a philanthropist gives 10 million pounds to an opera house um, in, in, and, and does that in a country where the top rate of tax is 
then he or she, if they get tax relief on their gift, which they do in most countries, means they're only effectively paying six million of the 10 million and the other four million is coming from the pocket of the taxpayer. And that means that the ordinary taxpayer is subsidizing the gift uh, of this single rich individual. So that four million pounds is not being spent in accordance with um, the priorities of a democratically elected government, but on, on the whim of, uh, of one individual. Um, and the government might well spend that four million on something else. Now, F. Scott Fitzgerald famously said the rich are different from us, to which um, Ernest Hemingway is, is supposed to have quipped in reply, yes, they have more money than we do. But it's actually more complicated than that because the rich have different values to the rest of us. Interesting study in 2013 in the States shown that the rich are more liberal on social issues, but more conservative on issues of taxation, economic regulation and welfare programs for the poor. So if the personal values of the rich are different from everybody else, that means that their personal spending priorities might not match those of the rest of uh, uh, the, the electorate. So this raises the, this key question of whether philanthropy and democracy are um, could be made more compatible if tax relief were reformed. And Rob, I'm sure, will talk about the idea of a sliding scale in which give, you give more tax relief to a homeless shelter than to an opera house. But the question is then raised, who decides, the government? And in my book, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, says, the history of the last hundred years ought to tell us that a hyperactivist state with lots of moral convictions can be pretty bad for everybody. So who decides the government, the philanthropists? Open question. Now, those are the arguments against uh, uh, philanthropy from a democratic point of view. The arguments for it, it, philanthropy acts as a kind of countervailing force in society. It offers a, a, an alternative to the power of a, an overweening government. And philanthropy can plug gaps left by government special interests or by government incompetence, uh, just as it can also compensate for market failure uh, by supporting research and innovation in areas which the private sector deems too high risk to risk its money. And philanthropy can fund the civil society groups that mediate between the individual and the market and the state, uh, what Edmund Burke referred to as the little platoons. Charities, voluntary groups, faith organisations, clubs, sporting associations, trade unions, campaigning groups, human rights activists, community organisers. If philanthropy supports this plurality of voices, then it strengthens democracy rather than undermining it. Uh, and philanthropy can um, provide a means to challenge uh, a democracy which has become illiberal. Uh, there was some interesting work among philanthropists, what to do now that Donald Trump has been elected uh, four years ago. I want to conclude by just saying that the current pandemic offers a very good example of the strengths of philanthropy. Bill Gates warned about a COVID-style pandemic five years before it happened. He funded the uh, fight against Ebola in 2014. And afterwards, he thought, well, what if you had a disease as, as deadly as Ebola, but as infectious as flu, lo and behold? And every year in TED Talks, conferences, lectures, Gates repeated the warning that this fast-moving airborne pathogen could kill more than 30 million people in less than a year. He even sought a private meeting with Donald Trump at the White House uh, to see if, uh, if Trump would act on this. But politicians, including Trump, ignored him. And Trump actually cut the U.S. disease control budget. 
So what philanthropy was then able to do, as Gates has shown, was to act unilaterally. He'd been working on immunizations uh, on other diseases uh, since the late uh, 1990s, when he discovered that Western drug companies were not doing R&D on vaccines to combat uh, deadly tropical diseases, even though they killed millions of people, because the people who killed were too poor to buy drugs. And Gates helped create a new business model by persuading governments to buy medicines in large quantities if they were developed. So using subsidies, advanced market commitments, volume guarantees, he changed the nature of the game. And he had the Gates Foundation spend more than $16 billion in programs to fight polio, AIDS, TB, malaria. In 2017, he put up $100 million to launch something called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI. And this uh, invests in diagnostics, therapeutics and vaccines and drugs, which can be quickly manufactured and distributed uh, in the developing world. Vaccines that are suitable, cheap vaccines. In 2019, just weeks before the COVID outbreak, he and Johns Hopkins University staged something that he called the germ games, like the epidemiological equivalent of war games, designed to uncover the holes in international medical defences. And since then, Gates has given grants or made investments in five of the companies uh, leading the, the vaccine race. One of them was BioNTech, um, which got a 55 million equity investment from him. Uh, um, which, as we know, launched the first Western vaccine. Gates has also funded the Jenner Institute in Oxford, where the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine was developed. And he's backing the world's biggest vaccine maker, Serum Institute of India, to produce 100 million doses of the Oxford vaccine. And it will be priced at less than $3 a shot for poorer countries. Gates has so far put $1.4 billion of his foundation money into building capacity for COVID vaccine distribution. He's not alone. Other, other philanthropists have done it. They've so far spent or pledged uh, $23 billion to support the coronavirus response. So there in a nutshell, it, are philanthropy and democracy uh, compatible? We can see that the democratic deficit is obvious, but we can also see that there are manifest advantages of philanthropy as a provider of alternative influence in the public debate as a mechanism for guarding against the failure of the market and the failure of the state. So I'll leave it to you to decide. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Uh, you left the question hanging. Are they compatible? Um, Fran, are um, philanthropy and democracy compatible? Thanks, Stefan. And, and thanks, Paul, firstly, for the extraordinary book, uh, which I've hugely enjoyed. Um, but today I'm here not as an academic, um, but as a practitioner, or as I like to think of it, I'm here to illustrate the problem. Um, I am a philanthropist, and it's a very strange job, because even though I chose to make it my profession, I was never interviewed, appointed, or trained to do it. And that surely is a major reason that philanthropy is anti-democratic, or at least anti-meritocratic. No one elected me to this position. I'm not concerned that Either of the books we're discussing today is an attack on philanthropy, although that's often how they're covered by the media. But that for far too long, there's not, not been enough debate about the role of philanthropy at all. We need more critique of philanthropy and we need an engaged debate with philanthropists on its role and value in society. I think in particularly in the UK, philanthropies remain shrouded in secrecy. 
few people have a clear idea what it means. So how can society judge whether it represents good value for taxpayer money, whether tax incentives are worth it or not, or whether it is in fact anti-democratic? I'm absolutely not here to defend all philanthropy, but to say that philanthropists must be more transparent in our work if we want philanthropy to survive. And we must be self-critical about where philanthropy fails. There's no market failure in philanthropy. I can make bad decisions my entire career as a donor without failing or going bankrupt. As a result, there's no incentive to modernise or to pursue best practice. I'm not in competition with other philanthropists. Philanthropy shouldn't be about the donor. It should be about the charities working to address social injustice. But donors must take responsibility for the quality of their relationship with charities and whether we're actually helping or hindering. I was fascinated by the distinction that you drew, Paul, between reciprocal or more strategic philanthropy. But I think it can fall into a trap of a false dichotomy. X is good philanthropy and Y is bad philanthropy. There are huge problems of uh, inequality and power dynamics in philanthropy. Sometimes the best way to give is through delegated power and decision making. So during COVID, I've been giving core unrestricted funds to a collaborative called the Rosa Fund for Women. They've worked in partnership with IMCAM, specialising in small community groups led by people from ethnic minorities, specialising around violence against women. And my absolute goal is to say, I should not be the person allocating this money. I have no lived experience. I don't know the lives and the issues faced by these women but I'm going to give the money to representatives of those communities who I trust to make best decisions about how to spend it. And I would encourage all donors to do that wherever possible. Give the decision-making power to the people who are most affected and who have the solutions. But sometimes, as Paul has said, philanthropy can be most effective when it is funding very boring infrastructure or primary scientific research. And it is going to inevitably be more top down, even if some of the decisions are led by a scientific academic community. What we should be taking out is the ego of philanthropists. But if we want to end that elite secrecy, then we need to step up and improve transparency. And that would be my absolute takeaway point. Um, reciprocal philanthropy always seems best it doesn't always lead to the outcomes that we want. But if we're not transparent, then the public has no chance to judge for themselves which is working. Small and personal frontline charities are often framed as the opposite of big strategic charities. For example, no one should have to use a food bank. A strategic donor might choose to fund advocacy and campaign for government to decrease poverty. But the democratic decision made in our country right now is to elect a government which is not tackling that poverty. I've worked at a crisis homeless shelters and it was one of the most meaningful and rewarding experiences of my life. But choosing to do that because it's meaningful to me is arrogance. I felt that that was reciprocal, but surely the people in that shelter would have preferred if I'd funded an entire other shelter. I believe it's my moral duty to make the most difference I can with the resources I've been given. But motivation is not the same as impact. 
Donors can be honourable and have humble intentions and still cause harm. As Paul's outlined, strategic donors like Gates can cause immense good. I believe the state is a force for good. I believe in the welfare state and that no one should be left behind. But I also want charities to be independent from government. And Rob, in his book, gives one of the best defences of philanthropy that I've ever read on page 181. He talks about maintaining independence between the state and civil society, and sometimes for civil society to act as a buffer, countervailing force to state power. He talks about pluralism. Civil society groups are distinct from government because they can pursue and represent minority interests and underrepresented voices. And lastly, funding which is wholly reliant on the state risks crowding out altruism and solidarity. The way I give away money is not democratic, but it is governed by the rules set by democratically elected government. I think that where philanthropy excels is often about innovation. And I think that's something that governments are particularly bad at. We need risk-taking, we need innovation, and governments often struggle with that. I don't want to waste taxpayers' money when I'm piloting a new area that might fail. But if I'm happy to risk my capital on that and it works, government may take it on and may scale it up. That could be a healthy relationship between philanthropy and democracy. The effective altruism movement talks powerfully about how we should only fund things that are proven and have a strong evidence base. But everything that is now proven was once innovative and untested. Somebody had to pilot it, somebody had to evaluate it, before we could prove that it's effective. I think a big part of the discussion should be about tax. I would encourage rich people to give more whilst also paying taxes, and just importantly, not to spend it on themselves. Is it a question of scale? Is a £100 donation more democratic than a £100,000 one? I don't think that tax alone will provide all the solutions that we want. And the numbers in the UK are that if you took all philanthropic spending and reassigned it to tax, it would barely make a dent in the major issues of today. It's not going to significantly change our education budgets, our health budgets, but it can intervene in key areas around them. Me having this wealth is profoundly unjust. There's no way around that. But the rules which allowed me to receive it are set by democratic government. I don't practice tax avoidance. I don't have offshore arrangements or anything like that. I actually support higher tax for the most privileged. But are we saying that all charity is anti-democratic or is it just a matter of scale? I'd add on the last point about tax is that giving to charity is actually a really, really terrible tax dodge because you still end up with less money than you started. We'll talk a lot about regulation but I would be wary of restricting what is and isn't charitable because my choices will be different to somebody else's. I may prefer the approach of George Soros than of the Koch brothers. Not everyone would choose the same. The risk of the state determining what good philanthropy is risks politicizing it even more. I founded 360 Giving because I was frustrated by the lack of transparency in philanthropy. It's a problem not just for collaboration, for measuring effectively who is doing what, but for any attempt to value and defend 
the role of philanthropy in modern society. And so I'm obsessed with giving donors the courage to step forward and say, this is what we're doing. These are the mistakes we've made. These are our successes. Society should judge us. And if they judge that we're failing, that we don't deserve the tax incentives, then they should change that scheme. But I don't see how we can have an informed debate about the role of philanthropy when no one knows who is doing what. My final point of philanthropy would be to say, how can we make it better? How can we improve it? Not how can we get rid of it? We have to tackle the lack of diversity. We have to improve lived experience and user voice. We have to empower the communities we should be serving and constantly striving to reduce inequality. But that means fixing philanthropy, not rejecting it. Thank you. Thank you, Fran. Um, um, very interesting points, and many of which we will come back to. Um, Rob, um, Fran, Fran gave me a link to what you, in your book called Discovery, um, I wonder if you could, I mean, you, of course, talk about what, what you're going to talk about, but if you could mention that at some point, just to, to make the connection with what Fran was saying. Absolutely. So first, thanks very much for including me in this conversation. And uh, um, uh, there's some risk of us being in some violent agreement here about the merit of Paul's book. So in the spirit of uh, making this more interesting for our audience, uh, I'm going to raise uh, some some concerns and criticisms, but I want to emphasize how much I admire the the book and the accomplishment. Um, I'll start with a minor quibble about the book, which you can see on the screen uh, behind Paul, if Paul is up right now for all of you. The subtitle of the book is From Aristotle to Zuckerberg. And uh, I, I have to uh, complain that I don't think Zuckerberg has merited anything uh, yet to uh, be put alongside Aristotle um, in the pantheon uh, of philanthropists. Um, I picked up a coffee uh, this morning on the way over to my office here at Stanford uh, from a shop right next to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And um, I have to say the, the jury is very much still out on, on Zuckerberg's philanthropic uh, initiative. Um, all right, that's just as a small quibble about the title. Um, uh, I wanna say, I wanna offer two observations and then two, two criticisms or two, two broader picture um, provocations. And I'll include in it um, Stefan's invitation for me to say something about the discovery argument as I call it in my own book, Just Giving. So first, um, I hope we can all agree, or this is certainly what I believe, that um, um, altruism or charitable behavior is a universal human disposition or practice. Um, every society uh, in every known corner of the world has always had some kind of altruistic or charitable behavior. And in fact, Paul's book as a grand tour of different settings and different times, um, I think is a powerful illustration of this. Uh, what makes the difference then in um, different charitable sectors or philanthropic practices or structures is the set of policies or norms that help to um, provide a setting in which this universal human behavior is expressed. So the reason why charity and philanthropy look different in different societies is not because human nature is different in different areas, but rather because the norms and policies channel um, philanthropic or altruistic behavior in different ways. Now, that's just a way of saying um, why the political science or um, philosophical perspective that I bring to bear on these questions, I believe is so important because what we are ultimately asking at the end of the day is how to evaluate and perhaps to change the policies or norms that channel this universal human behavior or disposition. 
We want those policies or norms to be compatible with justice or to be what democracy requires, et cetera, et cetera. Um, second observation, which brings us to the present day, which is we live in a second gilded age. And so every gilded age produces people of outsized wealth. And when people have outsized wealth, they have so much of it that they typically can't possibly consume or spend it all on themselves. And they often turn themselves into big philanthropists. And that gives rise to a kind, kind of generic observation, which is that big philanthropy in particular is an exercise of power. It's the direction of private assets towards some public influence. And as a definitional expression of power of rich people, I think it's fair to describe it as a plutocratic influence in a democratic setting. It's the power of a rich person trying to engage um, the public in his or her own projects. Paul mentioned Bill Gates and uh, Mark Zuckerberg's uh, educational funding projects and complained that they were unwise or produced bad outcomes. Um, we can, of course, find bad outcomes from corporate spending as well as government spending. I don't find it objectionable as such that we judge either Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg to have failed in their educational philanthropic projects. What's relevant, what Paul and Fran both said, is that Bill Gates was not elected. He has no title to serve as the nation's unelected school superintendent to try out a variety of different educational ideas, at least without any countervailing source of power against him. If you don't like what the school board has funded in your own local district here in the United States, you can vote the bastards out of office at the next election. There's no unelecting Bill Gates. So that leads to the two simple criticisms, or I suppose arguments I want to offer. Um, Fran already picked out what I thought was um, a very felicitous expression in Paul's book at the end, which is the aspiration at the end of the day to marry the effectiveness of strategic philanthropy with the empathy of reciprocal philanthropy. Um, that indeed is an admirable aspiration. And what I want to suggest here uh, is that um, we can connect that, that potential marriage, the combination of strategic giving with reciprocal giving, by thinking seriously about the time horizons that are connected to philanthropy. And this um, will allow me to introduce this discovery argument that Stefan mentioned. What I would like to suggest is that um, uh, what's distinctive about philanthropy is that it has the permission to operate on much longer time horizons than is the current circumstance within private assets in the marketplace or public assets in the government. Um, in democratic governments, there are periodic elections, which mean that our elected representatives are harnessed to relatively short time horizons for thinking about their spending decisions or their public policy decisions overall. If they wish to stand for re-election, they need to have um, done something so as within that short time horizon to impress the, um, um, the citizenry in order to uh, maintain a decent chance of re-election. In the marketplace, as Fran mentioned, there's both short-term competition. Your rivals are trying to put you out of business tomorrow. Your investors would like to see a return very soon. And if you have a publicly traded you know, uh, stock, um, similarly, the investors are also looking for a, um, a return in the short time horizon. What's distinctive about philanthropy is that it can think long. And that's the discovery argument I have to offer, which is that in a democratic society, 
philanthropy can serve as a certain type of long time horizon um, um, investment capital for social problem solving. And uh, that I think is the best case for philanthropy, big philanthropy in particular in a democratic setting. Now, how does this connect to Paul's wonderful aspiration of strategic philanthropy married with reciprocal philanthropy? I suppose what I wanna say there is um, strategic philanthropy seems to me best suited for these longer time horizon, effective, perhaps top-down driven enterprises. Whereas reciprocal philanthropy, chiefly as an expression of empathy and human connection, is ideal for very short time horizons. I see need in front of me in my own neighborhood today, and I wish to make a small charitable contribution to support the alleviation of that need um, um, tomorrow. Um, so the time horizon element I wish to introduce into this is that perhaps the way to marry strategic philanthropy with reciprocal philanthropy is to say, that strategic philanthropy aims to the long run, reciprocal philanthropy aims to the short run. And in that respect, philanthropy can serve various democratic ideals rather than undermine them. And that will be my final observation to try to address the very question of this entire um, discussion. What's the relationship between philanthropy and democracy? Well, if by democracy you understand the priorities of the current elected officials in a democratic government, then philanthropy is incompatible with the democratic um, um, ideal or, or government there. Philanthropy does not serve the interests of our elected officials in any immediate way. In fact, as um, Fran mentioned, it serves, it serves uh, society best when it acts as a potential countervailing force to the priorities of our current elected officials. However, if by democracy you mean the democratic ideals of freedom, equality, pluralism, um, an experimental approach to social problem solving, then philanthropy has a very important role to play when we have the public policies and norms that shape altruistic behavior in the right direction. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you, all three of you. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a super hard task um, to think about how to organize what we're going to talk about. But the, one of the things that strikes me is each of you in your own ways have articulated uh, a need for philanthropy to be more transparent, to be, to, to be more representative of the people it claims to serve, to uh, exercise greater levels of critique in order to address these questions of legitimacy. And if I'm right in understanding that, um, I wonder if any of you worry that one of the consequences of that which you ask for is uh, a kind of na a narrowing uh, of philanthropy to the point of ruling it out of, out of existence. In other words, I wonder whether those things that you have all also pointed to as being uh, the, 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 the compensating, valorizing elements of this are themselves at risk from, this, from, from what you argue. And I'm going to ask each of you to address this in the same order, Paul, Fran, Rob, and then I'm going to start going to the Q&A and, and um, uh, filtering some of the large number of questions that are coming in as, as, as we speak. Paul. Um, I, I, I don't see it as, as in, in that kind of binary way. Um, we, we need, uh, as Fran said, we need improvements uh, in, in lots of different areas. Um, Rob's right in, in raising the question mark over Zuckerberg. 
Zuckerberg, you know, my book ends with the question of Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg's made the biggest pledge in philanthropic history. He's pledged uh, 99% of Facebook shares, which when he pledged them were worth about $45 billion, and now are worth a double that, um, uh, to, to be given away. A uh, very laudable aim. Uh, but how's he going to do it? And then we look at what he does. Unlike most philanthropists, he's not set up a philanthropic foundation. Uh, he's doing it through donor-advised funds, which are very opaque and secretive and the exact opposite of what Fran is advocating. And he's doing it through limited liability companies, which he says will give him more flexibility to do a better kind of philanthropy. And as, as Rob suggests, the whole thing is very much uh, an open question because we, we don't know how it's going to uh, pan out. And we're not in a position to work out how it is panning out, even as it goes, because of the, the opacity of it. So um, th that's one of the one of the things that I would say. The other is that when it comes to uh, uh, Rob's int distinctions, interesting on, on strategic and reciprocal philanthropy and how how it's about time horizons. I, I, I suggest it's a bit more than that. And and that what you need is is for um, uh, the uh, the empathic philanthropists, the heart philanthropists, to be a bit more strategic. And that would, that would apply in both the long and the short term um, uh, perspectives. Um, and uh, the, the, likewise, for the, the strategic philanthropists in any context, in over any time perspective, uh, to, to, to take into account uh, the, the people that they're trying to help and stop seeing people as a problem and start to see them as, as partners and as Fran says you know people who have to be treated with 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 mutual respect so it seems to me that there are adjustments which are needed in in various of these these areas uh, and I, I I don't see that that, that you, you can you can you can you can say that the the, the arguments which which strengthen philanthropy anywhere in in any way undermine the 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 the, the concerns and and uh, uh, the the advantages of philanthropy when it comes to challenging democracy uh, when when we mean by democracy what rob discusses as you know the the, the short-term uh, aims of this particular government okay okay fran any any risks in 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 as it were um arguing for greater transparency i think the risk in where we would end up narrowing philanthropy is if we narrow the eligible causes. Obviously, there are some exceptions. I don't think there should be a confusion between political party political funding and charitable giving. But there are many areas where I think, I'm not sure that is a justifiable use of philanthropic money, but other people would say that's about my work. So I think that's where we do need pluralism. I concentrate more on what I call grant craft, the way that we give the money, the techniques that we use. And much of how we do that would be identical to Andrew Carnegie. You know, we haven't moved a long way in the mechanisms by which we give, except that there are slightly more women around the table, slightly. Um, so I want people to improve grant craft, to modernise, and I don't think that risks pluralism at all. Um, I think it can also... Uh, support elected officials, actually. Uh, work I've done with 360 and other areas has supported rather than worked against elected officials because of being able to take a risk um, that if it pays off, officials and politicians have then been able to adopt and roll out. So it doesn't have to be oppositional. 
Um, when it comes to the time horizons, I would say, yes, Rob's right. We should be able to take that long time horizon, have patient capital. But sometimes philanthropy is also at its best because it can be agile. It often isn't, but it can be. Uh, the government COVID response in the UK pledged £750 million to support charities. And that money has trickled out over the course of a year, whereas the National Emergency Trust managed to raise millions within a matter of weeks that was then distributed through community funds very, very quickly. Um, and that is still strategic giving. It's saying there is need. We are rapidly changing to address the need where it is. Um, so I think I would concentrate on saying that grant making needs to become better. It needs to modernize. Uh, and sometimes when we say strategic, actually what we mean is competent and well-informed. Uh, and that's what I'd like to see in all philanthropy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if I could just add one, one bit to that. Um, uh, I, I, as I said in my opening remarks, I think we need to direct some of our attention to the norms that uh, circulate in the social settings in which philanthropy is practiced. And for the past several decades, certainly I can say this with some confidence in the US, but I'm nearly certain it applies in, in the UK and elsewhere as well. Uh, the norms about philanthropy have tended to direct uh, an expectation of gratitude to a donor simply for showing up with some money in hand. Um, I've decided to give my own money away. Well, the proper civic response is gratitude and admiration for my philanthropic act. Now, if we have an era of increased transparency and increased scrutiny, some donors will feel like, what happened to my gratitude? Why are people picking on me? I was supposed to show up in social settings and be you know, exalted for my philanthropic largesse. Um, and what I want to say to that is the price of exercising power is the scrutiny of others to discover whether or not they agree or want to support that exercise of power. Just as politicians should never expect gratitude for showing up and having an opinion about public office, nor should a corporate leader in the marketplace expect their competitors to praise them for their corporate leadership, neither should a philanthropist expect only gratitude for the decision to give money away. And if philanthropists step in to now direct, you know, you know, in answer to your question, if because of increased scrutiny or increased transparency, Philanthropists decide they'd rather not show up anymore because they might get criticized. Shame on them for going home with their own marbles. I just have to leap in on that point in vehement agreement, but also to mention two specific innovations I've seen. One is grant advisors, which is a site aiming to be a trip advisor for grant making foundations, allowing um, charities who've either applied or received grants to leave feedback on how the grant maker was and what the experience was like. And I think we need to do more of that, which allows people to critique philanthropists. But also the best experience I've had recently was a fund in the UK called Resourcing Racial Justice, which interviewed donors to decide whether they would accept our money. And because it was specifically around racial equity, there was a long process for potential donors to say, how are you going to engage with us as we distribute the money to our communities? And rather than that making me feel that I should flee because there wasn't gratitude, I was hugely impressed and honoured to take part in that discussion. So I agree, anyone who 
isn't willing to engage in that conversation should get out of the game of philanthropy. And that's that's a very important uh, aspect, because if you look at particularly on racial justice uh, in, in the States in particular, when you look at the, the way that, uh, that, that those organizations have been funded, there's a, a tendency of, you know, uh, as with anything, the establishment to you know, assimilate and, and tame organizations. And that has happened in those situations. Uh, and there's an example in the book about uh, some aristocrats giving money to a, poor, a club for poor children in Manchester in the, in the Victorian era and saying, that be good if you stop criticising the aristocracy a bit, by the way. That kind of tendency is, is, is always there. Um, having said that, I think we need to turn the light on ourselves as a society as well as turning our light, uh, the light on philanthropists. This, this phenomenon of why, why are you picking on me? I think there is a, a tendency for philanthropists to act as the lightning conductor for the resentment of society to the rich. Um, and, uh, you know, the, most of the rich keep their head down and just buy a new Picasso or a new Learjet. Philanthropists do something in public and by sticking their head above the parapet, they, they get shot at. Um, and I think it's important to disaggregate what is uh, resentment against uh, the, the rich against growing inequality in societies um, uh, and what, what is actually a, a legitimate criticism of philanthropy. Thank you. Thank you all. I'm going to start. Um, there, are, there are lots and lots and lots of questions coming in, as, which won't surprise you um, to hear. Um, and they come in, they come in, a, 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 they come in various categories. There are a lot of questions about tax um, uh, and wouldn't we be better off uh, taxing more? So there's a series of questions from Jonathan Ankatel and others. There's quite a lot of questions about um, uh, whether the state has the capacity to innovate or whether philanthropy, as it were, disempowers the state or rolls it back. There uh, is a question from Hanan Ali about what in the, I think in the jargon is called mission-related investment. In other words, you know, what are foundations doing investing in, in, in carbon and mitigating carbon with their grants. Um, uh, what about small philanthropy? Um, what, about, what about altruism at the level of the individual? Um, is there a worry that um, uh, philanthropy leaves most of the principal drivers of injustice um, intact while, while focusing on some of their uh, symptoms? Um, that's a questioner from Ziad al-Ziadi. So the, the reason I've grouped them together is I'm going to start by asking Fran a very specific question which came to her, then going to go to a very specific question. But since you've heard what all of them are about, you're all free, as it were, to, um, uh, to address them. And otherwise, we will run out of time. Um, Fran, Yarissa Matos in Florida um, has a very interesting question about grant craft and whether your move to a focus on, as it were, kind of community agency has narrowed the number of um, institutions you can grant to um, uh, because they may have uh, smaller capacity or, or lower ability to scale. Which I think is a quite a very interesting question. Um, the short answer is no. Great. We uh, operate on a portfolio. So I've seen a lot of philanthropists categorised as um, we give to... Uh, sort of guaranteed return, you know, giving out vaccinations, feeding the hungry, straightforward, you know, we know that there will be a clear measurable result uh, versus the sort of angel investors, high risk, um, we're piloting something, it might work, it might not. 
And it's quite rare if you look at financial investors that they would be one type or another. They will have a mixed portfolio of different risks. So that's something I've tried to recreate in my philanthropy to say, we'll have some guaranteed return or as close as you can have. It's simple, it's not innovative, but it's reaching the last mile where governments might struggle. At the other end, we'll have the very high risk uh, proof of concept um, of which 360 giving was a project for me. I thought it might not work at all, but I was happy to waste my own money on it. As it turns out, it's proved quite successful. And we now have um, all the major foundations and the government publishing their data to this standard. But it came out of a risk. Um, and we have a variety in between. Um, I think what we try and do more is say, if we're funding small grassroots organisations, we are unlikely to be the people who make the best decisions. So who are the intermediaries who can make informed decisions from lived experience? And the Rosa Fund for Women was an example of that. They were going to make better decisions about the money than I could. So you're still able to support a large number of tiny charities if you work through good intermediaries um, and often going to those communities and asking them to make recommendations back to you. Um, so I think it is possible to keep that wide variety, but also find out where you are in the pipeline. Unless you're Bill Gates, there are unlikely to be entire world problems that you as a donor can solve. If I start giving to projects tackling malaria, I'm going to be a rounding error in the paperclip budget for the Gates Foundation. So is it better that I concentrate on smaller areas where I can shift the needle and then pass on successful projects to larger grant makers? Quick, quick thought on mission-related investments, by, by which we mean foundations aligning the investment half, which, return, which creates returns for their, on their endowment, which generates grants, being aligned with the things they give grants to? I think we're talking about several different things. So um, there's a simple do no harm. So uh, I have restrictions on no investments in armaments, you know, various things where I just say, no, we will not have investment in that. Then there's environmental. So I'm a signatory to the Divest Invest movement, which moves investments out of um, carbon economies and into green economies. When it comes to mission-related investment, I think it's a growing field, but it's more complicated. So if as a donor, I say, I want to support educational causes, investing in educational companies is not necessarily mission-related. It might look like it, but it's not necessarily going to meet the same needs. So I think people need to become far more informed about how the endowment operates, but not confuse something that superficially is mission-related investment with actually being um, a philanthropic use of money. Thank you. Very helpful. Um, um, uh, Paul, uh, specifically on, the, on this, on the foundation investment thing, and then whether there was anything, any of the questions that I tried to that I try to uh, trot through that pique your interest. Uh, then, Rob, then I'm going to ask each of you for a very final word. We're, we're, um, we have eight minutes left. Right. Um, I think uh, the, uh, that kind of dissonance that you're talking about there between how a foundation invests its, its money and then how it spends its money uh, is real. Um, and 
I mean, if we go back to Gates again, Gates has had a, 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 a steep learning curve on this. And uh, it was pointed out by uh, one of the papers in San Francisco, I think, that the, the, he was uh, investing in oil companies which were doing all kinds of things in Nigeria in places where he was trying to uh, address and alleviate the problems that they were causing. Uh, he made some changes on that. And one of the good things about Gates is he has learned over the years in various areas. Um, but he still, for instance, um, or, or rather Warren Buffett, who, who puts a lot of money into Gates, uh, still holds large um, holdings in Monsanto, for example. So uh, there, there, there are different views on, on, on the importance of uh, genetic modification uh, in terms of alleviating poverty or in terms of being an environmental hazard. So, you know, it's complicated, but it's not black and white and there, there, is, there is room for movement. Um, I, I would give a, a very similar answer on the other points, the black and white. Uh, none of these things are black and white. So tax. Yes, of course, rich people should should pay more taxes. And a lot of rich people, Buffett, Gates and so forth, uh, say that, that that's the case. They admit that they should be paying more taxes. But uh, the point that, that Fran and, and Rob have made about the, the role of philanthropy as an alternative uh, to, to, to the state um, means that Taxes are not not the only answer. You can't just you know say let's let's do taxes, 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 and and forget about philanthropy. There are some things. Uh, one one of the interviewees in the book says uh, that you can have uh, the best state funded uh, uh, organization for health, but who's going to pay for the clowns to go into the pediatric ward? Uh, or Pope Benedict says at one point, even in the most just society, there will still be people who are lonely. And loneliness, the response to loneliness is, is charity and love, not, uh, not justice. So, there are, so that, you know, that, that reminds me of, of a question that Trahita Gonsalves in Kolkata raises about what I call small philanthropy. You know, can, can the poor be philanthropic? Um, yes, uh, the poor could be more philanthropic. I mean, in our vocabulary, philanthropy means a very rich person giving away a lot of money. But what my the history of the book, uh, the history of philanthropy, as the book lays it out, shows that philanthropy has meant many different things in many different situations. And just to look at uh, the present situation, if you look at uh, crowdfunding, if you look at telethons uh, or things like comic relief, you can see there's been a democratization of of philanthropy and ordinary people can participate uh, in, 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 in philanthropy in, in its proper sense. Thank you, Paul. And um, Rob, any of the questions that, um, that I trotted through pique your curiosity before I go around and ask each of you for a, for a sure. last? Let me say uh, three things about the issue with tax uh, and, uh, and philanthropy or tax in democratic societies. So, Number one, should we have tax relief for philanthropic or charitable giving? That's an interesting question, and that's exactly the kind of policy question in which different societies answer it in different ways. My own view in the U.S. and elsewhere is that the policy instrument we currently use is not compatible with what democracy um, should aspire to, and we should change the tax instrument or policy instrument. Now, however, let's imagine that you think charitable or philanthropic contribution should have no tax relief at all. Um, all of the philanthropic money comes out of your own pocket and your own pocket alone. Does that then mean the philanthropist can do whatever he or she wants and doesn't, doesn't um, need any public scrutiny? 
No, it's still an exercise of power of a wealthy person to direct private assets at public influence. So in that respect, tax relief does not exhaust the, um, the range of questions that we should be asking. Now, perhaps you think, second observation, that tax relief is something that should diminish, uh, not tax relief, excuse me, taxing is something that should diminish the power of the rich person in the first place by diminishing the amount of the resources they have to direct it at public influence. That's then once more just an ordinary question of what the function of taxation is of, 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 of individual wealth. And it seems to me a relevant question, not just of an individual in terms of an income tax, but of course of estate and inheritance taxes that can be passed down to future generations. And then finally, as Paul's already mentioned, whatever the correct tax rate is in a society, and I, I want to say there probably isn't such a thing as the right answer to that, always a, a subject for a democratic contestation. Um, there will remain, in my view, still an important role for philanthropy to play, even if we make billionaires a policy failure and no one has outsized wealth anymore because the tax rates have been so high. We should still find a way to support philanthropy in its mode of democratic support um, rather than democratic subversion. And to distinguish between those two once more is a matter of social policies and social norms in the right direction, not exhortation to the moral conscience of an individual donor. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I love, I love this focus on the contested nature of, of almost everything that we're talking about. Um, uh, Fran, I'm going to ask for your final thoughts, and then I'm going to ask Paul for his final words as we, as we come to the end of our allotted time. Uh, it may seem strange to say this when we've all talked passionately for an hour, but I think we need to talk more about philanthropy. I want to see this debate um, move beyond these exalted academic circles and much more into a public debate, which says, how do we feel about these tax incentives? How do we judge the success or failure of philanthropy? And that requires donors to give up some of their secrecy, be brave, put their head above the parapet, and be honest about the mistakes that they make, but also to take it seriously. This should not be a gentleman's hobby where we make the money and then with no training at all, we decide that we have a godlike ability to give it away and have the power to make perfect decisions. Um, donors should learn how to be donors and recognize that are not necessarily those the same skills as earning the money. Um, I sent myself back to school. I did something called the philanthropy workshop and I never stopped trying to learn what it means to be a good and a better philanthropist. Um, we need to take this as seriously as business because the impacts are far greater. Thank you, Fran. Paul, last word to you before I thank everyone and wrap up. I, I very much uh, uh, have learned stuff today and uh, uh, I would think the, the biggest takeaway is that the emphasis on transparency needs to extend beyond just the individual philanthropist and, uh, and their organization and to address some of the questions that, that Rob has raised about, you know, we, we need to have a proper debate on tax, tax relief, tax reform, what the pros and, and, uh, uh, and cons of that are, rather than uh, making polarized statements about uh, uh, it's all of taxes, 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 or it, philanthropy is, is something to be uh, admired and uh, not, not critiqued. 
there are, uh, as you said, drivers of, of, of injustice which remain in, intact. There, are, there is a relationship between philanthropy and globalization, but the, the, the global, global economy has boomed at the same time that philanthropy has boomed and inequality within individual societies has boomed. It's not causal, but it's, there is a correlation. And those are areas we need to examine and which are not sufficiently scrutinized. Uh, and we just need a more informed and nuanced and open-minded debate. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, so, I, I mean, I've been amazingly struck by how consistently each of you uh, um, f is focusing on issues of contestation and conversation and analysis and information, and how this thing that we that we wrap with the word philanthropy touches all kinds of other questions around legitimacy and taxation, uh, and 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 globalization. So, so I was I was very moved to hear Fran's exhortation to 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 further discussion, which brings me on to my thanks. I mean, first and most obviously to thank these extraordinary extraordinary. Uh, speakers, we're uh, enormously fortunate to have them um, here, as it were, at the LSE. To thank my LSE and Marshall Institute colleagues uh, who organised all this. To thank you uh, in the audience uh, all over the world for uh, lots and lots of really great questions. We could continue this conversation for hours and hours and hours and not exhaust what's coming in uh, on the right-hand side of my screen. Um, and I think I'm going to I'm going to give the final words. Um, uh, back to Paul, as it were, in my voice, uh, a line from, I think, near the end of his book, philanthropists should see the world not as a succession of problems that they have to solve, but as a succession of people who can be their partners. That seems to me entirely consistent with what we've heard from Rob. Thank you, Rob. Fran, thank you. And thank you, Paul. Um, that's it. Goodbye from uh, the LSE. And uh, thank you again.